welcome to Lithium Ion Rock Season 1, Episode 15, Southern Accents, Part 2. Kissam Luke, Lithium Blue Sky. We also have Chris Kapsch of Loop Capital, a leading analyst who covers Albemarle as well as Livent and many other stocks, and recently took Albemarle personnel around to a number of institutional investors, and we'll give some feedback from that. But first, Rodney and I continue our conversation from May 30th with Luke Kassam. We look um, at uh, your at Albemarle's current enterprise value and strip out the bromine and catalyst divisions on reasonable multiples. It looks as if you're trading at, at close or at replacement value for the lithium assets. So to me, that's that seems very reasonable. What should what catalyst should investors be focusing on? Well, if I look at it, if you if you put a reasonable multiple on the bromine, the the uh, catalyst and our fine chemistry services business at our prices today, you're essentially getting lithium for free. So I think we're an undervalued stock. Uh, you know, I had one investor tell me, Luke, the problem is uh, you articulated a business strategy. We like your business strategy. You're executing it against that business strategy, and the street's not giving you any credit for it. So if you look and look at our stock, and you look at you, you look at index pricing out in China, um, or what the published price on is China, uh, we're trading uh, pretty much in accordance with what that lithium price is in China. We're not getting any differentiation on the quality of our business versus some of our competitors. We're not getting any differentiation on um, our resource base w- versus what they have, our EBITDA margins, our growth. So it's a it's a lithium block trade right now based upon what people believe the index pricing is in China. Um, that's frustrating to our shareholders. That's frustrating to our management. Um, but, you know, we can either whine about it or we can keep putting points on the scoreboard, keep delivering on that strategy, um, and ultimately, I believe the shareholder. This is a great place for uh, uh, a great valuation right now. We're seeing a lot more value-based shareholders uh, very interested in the stock, which I think will bode well in the long run. Yeah, we we agree in in the sense that you've had consecutive quarterly growth, and as you say, it seems as if uh, they're referring to a volatile China spot price as the sort of reference point. Yeah, I mean, if, if I look at our EBITDA growth, if I look at our peg ratio, if I look at our revenue growth, if I look at the top line growth, if I look at our margins, uh, it doesn't correlate to the stock price. What's, what is the closest correlation I've looked at is what that index pricing is in China. And that's across the, that's really across the lithium uh, uh, space for all publicly traded lithium companies. And look, not all of us are created equal. I see you as vulnerable for a uh, opportunistic takeover at this valuation for all the reasons that you said. Are you, uh, to the extent that you could disclose, are there like big mining, big oil, big chemical? You're seeing West Farmers kind of come in. It seems this is the most interesting, fastest growing segment of the the chemicals business. Um, What are your thoughts on the possibility of a takeover and where might that come from? Well, we run a publicly traded company, uh, and my email's on, online. So if anybody wants to call me, they know how to get there. And our board will, under, we're Virginia Corporation, so under Virginia law, we'll assess anything that comes in. 
uh, appropriately, and if we think it creates more value for our shareholders than, than we can create on our own path, we'll certainly we'll certainly engage. If not, we'll continue on our path. So I, we can't worry about that. I, my job is ultimately you got to assume somebody's going to come at some point in time in the future. It happens to all of us. So if that's going to happen, our job is to make sure they pay the absolute highest premium so our shareholders can make the most money out of the whole thing, and that's that's what our goal is. Have you, uh, I mean, stock's undervalued. It's not crazy for executives and insiders to be buying the stock. Is that, I haven't checked the insider buying and selling recently, but is that something that uh, has happened or might happen or contemplating? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think you, what you also got to look at is how much of these how much shares these people own already of the of the inside management and um, and how much of their net worth is tied up in Albemarle stock today. Uh, so I, I think that's one piece of it, but it's only it's only one piece. What's their overall holdings in Albemarle today? What's the value of that holdings? And what is that compared to their uh, overall net worth? I feel good about where we are. We share with our board the holding requirements of our named executive officers on a, a twice a year, uh, and we share with them what the update is on that, of where people are, and everybody who's on that leadership team is in compliance with their ownership guidelines today. Okay. I'm a big believer of, uh, again, going back to our keep it simple, stupid, just to, the, the market signaling effect of um, insider buying, I think, is, is generally powerful. You spent 1.15 on uh, on 50 percent of Wajina, and it'll take about another 800, 850 in capex. About 40 thousand dollars a ton. So, what what long term price ju- is is needed to, you know, secure you an RR of two times your cost of capital? Yeah, what we did was we based it on our existing contract, uh, our existing contracts. So we took the existing contract price that we have through 2025, where we have existing contracts or for how long out those drop side contracts are. We plugged in that volume and those prices that we have today secured, and then we made some base assumptions, but it's not dramatically different than what we have under our contracts today. We're, we're in the ballpark of where we have today. Thanks very much, Luke. And um, if we look at uh, the uh, sort of spider web of factors that Albemarle uses to select a, an acquisition target, can you just pick out the two most important factors that you look at? Um, well, if you're talking about a resource, the number one is the quality of the resource. If you're talking about an existing operation, the number one is the quality of the people. Uh, and then how, what's the cost? Um, uh, how much capital are we going to have to implement? Uh, and what's that return on invested capital and what's the accretion dilution over a period of within a reasonable period of time. You talked a little bit about your assets, but I think it, it, it is very important. The foresight of buying Rockwood, Greenbush's is the best hard rock asset on the planet, and the Atacama is, are the best, you know, Brian's. This, that's just a fact, and I, I don't think investors, you know, still fully appreciate um, that. But as the market has grown so much, and you've had to diversify. Um, you have pivoted a bit from the expansion out of Atacama and uh, with mineral resources and Wajina focused on hydroxide. And you've said that that is a hydroxide versus carbonate thing. It's not a Chile versus uh, um, you know Australia thing. Your strategy. You, you've you've made a big investment. It was a competitive process with mineral resources. Uh, Ganfeng is is not a company that uh, you mentioned. They're they are one company that is bringing some should be bringing some tons online from their carbonate and 
hydroxide expansions, but their strategy has been fairly different than yours in terms of partnering for offtake. And they've had a very, they have a lot of partners. You know, they invest a little bit of capital. Uh, some of that, I believe, is uh, cost of capital constrained. I mean, in China, they, they just don't have as big balance sheet. I mean, you have your Roman and Catalyst business, et cetera. But uh, what do you think of they've, – they've announced they want to be number one. You're number one. They're number four, right? Uh, what do you think of their strategy? Um, and, you know, might you pursue similar, uh, I guess, partnering strategies with, with smaller companies? So, uh, first of all, I think – you know they're clearly going to going to grow. They're clearly going to grow, and they've made a decision that what they're going to do is they're going to grow by taking offtake agreements from different mines and being able to build a, put their capital in the conversion assets. Um, at, at points in time, that will increase their operating costs. So they're making a trade off between an operating cost versus a capital cost early, and and that's the right model for them. Uh, the right model for us in our balance sheet, as we thought, is to own the resource because I think that gives you an advantage. Um, uh, it gives you more control. Uh, it does give you less flexibility, though, So, um, for, for a fact, it does. Uh, but we believe that's the best approach for us today. Uh, look, I don't care whether or not we're the biggest lifting company in the world. It is irrelevant to me whether we're the biggest lifting company. I want to be the most profitable living company in the world. And there's the difference. We're not going to chase volume. We will not do it. We're going to meet the market demands, but we are not going to chase volume. It doesn't do us any good, none, none at all. Um, it hurts our shareholders for us to do that. So we're going to take a focused approach. Uh, we're going to take a methodical approach that is going to hopefully drive value for the short term, but hope you know for, for the short, medium, and long term. There are always trade-offs that you have to make, uh, but I'm, I'm not concerned whether they're the largest lithium company in the world as long as our profitability is where it ought to be versus our peers. Do you see opportunities in some of the depressed, advanced stage, you know, kind of pre-development companies uh, to, as they have, uh, partner with them in some way or acquire them? Yeah, I think that the place that I'm particularly interested in is um, conversion assets uh, that would take the spodumene rock and convert them to either lithium carbon or lithium hydroxide. Uh, that becomes a, a buy versus build scenario. Uh, we did that previously in China with our assets in Zinyu and Qingdu that we recently uh, brought online an expansion, obviously, of Zinyu. But that, that's what we did. We bought Toller because it was quicker, more cost effective, and more efficient for us to buy rather than build a greenfield site from scratch. We look at the same thing now, both in connection with Wojna as well as uh, compared to the, what we might do additionally at Kimmerton. But the only conversion assets today are in China, so the That's only right. the only opportunity would be to buy another one in China. That's correct. And what do you think about like Namaska or Quebec, for example? Um, with, well, and there's North American Lithium, which has a half-built um, you know carbonate plant. But if I think about Quebec as a geography or North Carolina as a geography and also Europe as a geography. Converters need to be built in those locations, in my opinion, um, if you're going to have, uh, you know, this sustainable su supply chain that Volkswagen's talking about yeah. with, you know, supply close to cathode and battery, you know, manufacturing.
So I think that when you look at it from a cost perspective, it's a whole lot easier to ship lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate to Europe than it is to ship, you know, spodumene concentrate rock. From a cost perspective, that's going to be a whole lot easier to do. If I look at North America, Kings Mountain is a viable resource, uh, and we've spent, uh, you know, multiple tens of millions of dollars in quantifying that resource. There's no question in my mind that that is a world-class asset. Uh, the question becomes how quickly can we get the permits? Uh, how quickly can we get the place for the tailings so that we could uh, build that? But we have that in right at Kings Mountain that is a viable resource that we could build a world-scale uh, lithium hydroxide, lithium carbonate, or some other lithium derivative plant uh, right here in North Carolina. Uh, and it's just a matter of we need to pick our priorities. So right now we pick build out Taliesin because it's the world's low-cost producer, have conversion capacity in Australia for that, do this transaction with MRL, and then you'll see us coming with Kings Mountain if the demand requires such. So we're going to be here in North America. We're also looking at expanding uh, in Silver Peak. Can we produce more out of Silver Peak in Nevada? Um, which would be which would be great. So I think we can have world scale plants here, but it's going to take somebody like Albemarle who has the balance sheet, the technology, and the financial wherewithal to go through that period of time and, and go through that system. So you are going to issue a bond sometime this year to finance the transaction you announced. So when do you think the timing uh, is to close? I know you said second half, which seemed a very long time for like a joint venture as opposed to an acquisition. So I was just curious about about that. And uh, I understand you have an investment grade credit. Interest rates have gone down surprisingly in the past few months. So any thought, I know Mineral Resources just did a deal, a bond deal. It was like eight and a quarter percent, but I think you're, you're probably looking at something south of five. So any thoughts on, I guess, just timing of closing and also when this this bond issue might happen? Yeah, we still expect that the timing of the closing to be in the second half of the year. And what the only thing that we still got to go through the regulatory process, whether it's an acquisition or joint venture, because of the sales that both parties had made into China and other places, we've got China regulatory approval. So that's really essentially the, the holdup is, is waiting on that regulatory approval. We still expect to, to close the transaction. It just got, you just got to go through the process. So that's, but it's acquisition of joint venture. It's the same one from this particular transaction standpoint. Um, we expect to close that. So on, on the bond, somewhere in four to five percent range is, is what we would say. Uh, we'll probably uh, close that uh, sometime in the second half, I would assume, as well. Um, not worried about getting that financing. We'll be fine. We'll maintain investment grade. Uh, and we've got a strong balance sheet, that which has enabled us to do this. So we feel really, really good about this. Your CapEx is fully, I guess, funded by those floor prices from your customer contracts. And those are coming, I believe, from Korean and Japanese you know, in U.S. and European customers, are, are, are some of those, a lot of people have some skepticism on Chinese customers and whether or not they'll maintain their floors. So can you talk about your customer mix? What percent is, is China? What we're doing is we're taking all our free cash flow uh, from a company and we're investing in organic growth in lithium because of the growth and plus to meet that customer demand. Uh, the bulk of our customers, you know, I've said before there are about a dozen customers that matter in this space from a cap, from a, uh, from a battery 
producer and a cathode producer standpoint, we have, I, I want to be really clear, we, we sell to Europeans, we sell to Japanese, we sell to Koreans. They also have plants within China. So we're, we're, you, you can play in the Chinese market by selling to those companies who are also have plants in China. So we're not, we're not I just, semantically, I want to be sure we're clear on what we're talking about. Our business to those businesses, the in in the uh, would be, you know, 85, 90% of, of our volume in that in that space. Uh, we'd also the, the the difference there would be to the major, the larger Chinese uh, battery producers, the larger Chinese um, um, uh, cathode producers. So um, the the local. Chinese, we may have in 17 had some opportunistic sales to them, but they weren't on long-term contracts. So our long-term contracts are, for the, for the most part, of large multinational companies, all of which you would know if I said their names, in this space, in the cathode production and in the uh, battery production. From an earnings perspective, you can see the benefits of having long contracts in place for yourselves. Yeah. And, and, in, and in fairness, if you go back to 2017, there were people that were selling at a higher price than we were and were, were making money. And, and we knew that. And we were very open and transparent about that. Uh, but in, in the last, in the fourth quarter and in the first quarter, you could see our pricing was actually up year over year. And it was consistent with what we said it was going to be. And we thought that would take some of the volatility out of the start, stock, which would make us uh, a preferred place if somebody wanted to invest, um, and that to date at least has not been the case. But forever is a long time. We're going to keep working and keep finding ways to try to deliver more value to our shareholders. Of your major customers, how many different suppliers do they have, and how do they view you relative to those other suppliers? Oh, they love us the most, as, as you would expect. <laughs> uh, no, I think if you if you look across there, there I I I've checked this. I do not believe there is any customer that we have 100 percent of their business. I mean, that'd be it. Really, be foolish for somebody to give us 100 percent of their business. Anybody in this kind of space. So, um, almost all of them have. Uh, if I'm selling to them, the other companies are selling to them as well because we may have 40% or 50%, but that leaves another 50%, and they're going to uh, go to another major producer to to get a portion of that. And maybe they'll play a little bit on the open market with the last 5 or 10% of that. So I think that's what they're doing. And, and remember, these battery producers today are having to forward contract because they're making commitments to automotive OEMs for models that are being rolled out in 2022 and beyond. So they need that long-term stability. They need that security of supply so they can make that commitment. And they're not gonna put all their balls in one in one basket, right? They're gonna spread it around a little bit. You and I would do the same thing if we run that business. Same thing Albemarle does when we get suppliers. We're very rarely um, single-sourced in any particular critical raw material. A lot of the uh, carbonate contracts uh, expire or, or come up for renewal in, in 2021 or beyond. Will you look to re-enter long-term contracts for carbonate production or will it be dependent on the market price at the time? Well, they're always market dependent. If you, if you go back and look four short years ago, we didn't really have long-term contracts in this industry. They were always 
uh, annual purchase orders. And uh, we've moved the industry because of the capital that we need to invest uh, to the long-term contracts. We like that model. We think that uh, the battery producers like that model as well because it gives them security of supply uh, for the commitments that they're making to the OEMs. So I, I believe you'll still see us working toward some form of a long-term agreement. In two years, uh, is it going to be a different model? Will there be some difference pricing? Will, you know, will it be um, some changes to what we have now? I think those agreements, just like business relationships, always evolve. So I'd never say never. But right now, given the capital investment that we have, I, I like the way those contracts are working and have helped us, particularly in the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year with our overall performance. And uh, just one last thing, uh, Luke, do you have do you have flexibility? I know, I think it's around 80% is under contract. Do you have some flexibility in your production profile that you could sell some, uh, some product into the market if we see a price spike? Uh, yeah, it would need to be told volume, but what we what we backed away from in uh, the first quarter and continue to do so is we backed away from some taking some of our share of the top talisman uh, spismine concentrate and tolling that into lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide. We we backed away from that because we just couldn't get the price that we needed on lithium carbonate. Uh, any toll volume or the bulk of the toll volume that we used in the first quarter we use for our own downstream use in uh, our specialty products in lithium. So going to butyl lithium, butyl uh, metals, and things such as that. Okay, great. Thanks very much. That's my questions. Uh, okay. All right. Great to talk. Here on Wall Street with Chris Capsch of Loop Capital, an analyst who covers Livent as well as Albemarle, recently uh, took them around, uh, took management of both companies around to institutional investors following their earnings. So a very fresh perspective from Chris. What is Loop Capital? What stocks do you cover in addition to Albemarle and Livent? Yeah, sure, Howard. Thanks, and thank you for the opportunity. So I'll start out with Loop Capital. Um, we're a 21-year-old boutique investment banking and broker-dealer firm. Uh, we actually have more than uh, 200 employees of activities spanning uh, equity research, sales and trading, fixed income sales and trading, uh, investment banking, private equity activities, financial, financial consulting services. The firm also has an infrastructure fund. And um, interesting, we also have a strategic alliance with Bank of China, through which we serve actually as Bank of China's investment banking partner in the United States. Um, so we're focused solely on institutional investor clients. We don't have retail clients. Been doing investment research probably close to 25 years, primarily on the sell side and more at boutique firms. And my focus has mostly been uh, sort of, quote unquote, industrial or old economy stocks, but more specifically the chemical industry. And I tend to gravitate a little bit more towards specialty chemical businesses and stocks, just because I find those um, to be a little bit um, less mature, less cyclical, and uh, more differentiated in terms of um, uh, the and interesting in terms of the uh, secular trends, the end market drivers, and um, the, frankly, the returns on uh, on 
uh, on sales or returns on on assets that um, make them they tend to be a little bit more of a, a more interesting from an investment perspective vis-a-vis some of the more commodity oriented chemical companies tend to be more trading vehicles. Okay, and in addition to Livent and uh, Albemol, what are some other prominent uh, chemical, specialty chemical companies that you cover? I tend to focus more on specialty chemical names, which is an extremely eclectic and fragmented space. Um, but names you may be familiar with are uh, WR Grace, which is actually a competitor to Albemarle in the, in the catalyst business. I cover uh, FMC, which is the former parent of um, Livent. And I cover um, you know, just a broad spectrum of small and mid-cap um, niche situations. So I'm also looking continually to opportunistically add to that coverage list. And obviously with Dow DuPont breaking up into three, three separate companies, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest in those names currently. And so I'm doing work on some of those. A very big debate, I think, out there on the street is uh, specialty chemical, commodity chemical, multiple, because you've seen a very significant derating of, let's say, Albemarle's multiple. Uh, it's now trading at seven times your forecasted, you know, 2020 EBITDA, EBITDA. And I look at your some of the parts valuation and you're affixing an 11 times multiple to both uh, Albemarle's lithium business as well as Livens, whereas Albemarle's refining business, you put, you know, 10 and a half multiple and bromines, you put an eight and a half uh, multiple. These are EV to EBITDA forward multiples. So w- what goes into your thinking about an eight and a half versus an 11 times multiple? Like what makes bromine, you know, less special and is eight and a half times, that's still relatively rich if I compare it to some iron ore or coal or other um, companies we've looked at that sometimes are trading at five and, and six times. I consider traditional commodity companies like that. So in your mind, what is the difference between a specialty chemical and a commodity chemical? And what goes into your expectation, you know, that 11 times is the appropriate multiple? And the last thing I'll say on that is um, Albemarle paid 14.4 times EV to EBITDA trailing for Rockwood. So a very substantial premium to, to where it's currently trading today and also the, the, the steady state multiple that you think is, it should trade at. I mentioned the just eclectic um, and fragmented nature of, this, of the specialty chemical space. And, and I do think of these integrated lithium players. Sure, they're mining minerals that come from you know, basic resources, but they're, they're adding value and converting these minerals into derivatized product. Um, I do think of them as quasi-specialty chemical companies. Uh, but that debate, I understand, will rage on. Um, just over the decades, you will see that different points in economic cycles and as sectors are in favor and out of favor, the, there's a broad range of valuations that are applied to the, the uh, chemical industry for more commoditized cyclical chemical commodity chemical companies. Something you know perhaps is a trough as low as four and a half or five times more differentiated, high margin and growth oriented, especially chemical companies, maybe as high as mid to upper teens over time. And there's some examples of that. Although right now my uh, my valuation and price targets are relatively rich for the lithium space, it, it it's um, relative to where the stocks are for sure. It it's tied to this debate about okay, are these really 
um, just down and dirty mining companies, or is there really some form of value-added and differentiation that um, will be ultimately be applied to the stock's valuation over time? Um, obviously, in the latter camp, because like you, I'm, I'm drawn to the long-term secular themes that I think are paradigm-shifting of nature, and I do think that um, there is some differentiation. The skepticism that enveloped the space has to do with the uh, near-term oversupply. Um, I think that will... Um, you know, be proven to be less of an issue over time. A company like Albemarle, for example, will, can sustain the margin profile and continue to grow its lithium business at the, you know, strong double-digit rates that um, effectively over time you will see that negative sentiment that's that sort of pressured the multiple now. I think that it will reverse over time and, and this um, downdraft in the equity will, it will end up being a buying opportunity. Okay, so on Albemarle, you have a target price of a hundred and eight dollars. It's trading, I don't know, sixty-five or thereabouts. Yeah, so um, we spent a day with uh, some representatives from Albemarle in the Midwest, and what was interesting to me was, for the first time in a number of years, uh, there's been um, a little bit of change in the type of investor that's interested in in the situation. For for a number of years, it was it was a little bit um, skewed towards. Uh, what I refer to as growthy or garpy or maybe even momentum sort of investors. And given that these stocks have pulled back so dramatically for the first time in a number of years, you're starting to see true value investors that are starting to you know, pull out their, their files and dust off those files and start doing work a little bit on, on the lithium space, knowing that long-term, secularly, the demand drivers are quite intriguing. These investors have a discipline that you know, when the stock back in, say, 2017 was trading at a strong double-digit EV to EBITDA multiple, it just wasn't something that they were going to chase. It is quite interesting that at, at these levels, you're starting to flush out some of those value-oriented investors to, to start doing the work and get reacquainted with this, these stories. And what were these new investors, what were they asking? Nobody's really questioning demand. And in fact, as, as you've witnessed, um, we continue to see um, demand forecasts for the industry continue to be revised higher. And so there hasn't really been much pushback on that side of the equation. Um, clearly, they're focused on um, the supply and how, why that's had the influence on, on certain lithium prices and um, what's the prognosis for that supply creep over time. Um, who, are, who, who will be the winners, who, who might be the losers, that kind of discussion. Also of interest is this, this concept of um, Albemarle being the quote-unquote baseload supplier of lithium chemicals for a lot of leading um, uh, lithium-ion battery players in the, in the uh, EV supply chain and trying to understand uh, the, the characteristics of those contracts and, and um, testing you know, what might happen under certain scenarios as, as this um, relatively immature industry further develops. And then um, I guess just there's certainly um, discussion just about, you know, the company's strategic direction and why the investments um, the curtailed investments in Latin America, Chile specifically, and why spending the money that they're spending on lodging a project. Reading from your note, Chris, you're, you're basically saying that some instances, Almost customers continue to take or indicate they will take delivery of tonnage above the minimum requirements spelled out in their lithium supply contracts. 
there's always a question in the market uh, that that uh, you know price floors. Um, if the spot market is trading through a price floor, then customers just won't um, adhere to those. I've never really subscribed to that view. If you're talking about you know a U.S. customer, a European customer, a Japanese customer, a Korean customer, but there definitely is a perception that if you have Chinese customers, that you know that they won't. Um, you know, abide by that. And I think uh, Livent experienced such. So could you just, I guess, address that question of uh, is there some risk uh, to their price floors? Well, let me touch on a couple of of nuances that um, I I find interesting and and may also get at what I think is maybe a misunderstanding or misperception about Albemarle's competitive positioning and just, you know, addressing this EV market uh, more generally. One is that, you know, this idea that actually even though some the spot price of some lithium chemicals is below what the floors are on Albemarle supply agreements, the fact that some of these key EV supply chain battery customers are taking above their minimum suggests to me that that um, they're not just taking their minimums um, in spite of spot prices being lower. Um, in, in other words, I don't think there's necessarily tension there. I think it's like that legitimately they rely on um, this high-quality supplier, in this case, Albemarle. Um, the... Um, I think it's important, and it might be something that's misunderstood, when you're addressing this automotive supply chain and you have major customers, Western automotive players like Volkswagen, like BMW and others, that are shifting their entire fleets over time from internal combustion engines to battery-based vehicles. In doing that, they're obviously they have to have you know vehicles that appeal to consumers at right price points and so forth, but... One thing that's at risk for them is their brand and their reputation. And because of that, like the automotive industry has always had an intense focus on quality because the last thing that some of these companies can afford is a massive sort of recall for some quality issue or some safety issue um, because that can really impact, um, you know, a, a key auto player's brand. And so that focus um, finds its way down the supply chain, I think, all the way in this case to um, not just the battery producers, the cell producer, but also the lithium supplier. And I think that's something that's a little bit lost on um, some of the naysayers in the institutional community with respect to the prospects for a, an integrated qual- high-quality supplier like Almar sustaining its, um, its margin profile, is that the supply chain just needs reliable supply of quality um, and dependable producers of of lithium that are in spec and are going to meet um, the requirements as as um, put forth by um, specifications from both OEs and battery makers um, in addressing this opportunity longer term. Are there risks to pricing floors? I, I, I guess if if we have you know a global recession and the supply from um, you know, secondary or tertiary lithium suppliers continues to come on and it affects, you know, spot prices for non-battery grade materials, I guess they're, you know, that could increase the tension over time. So sure, there's some risk that some customer will say, you know what, I think I, I want to reset this contract. But in doing so, they're also going to be taking risks that a few years from now when the supply conditions, and it might be a couple of years from now when the supply demand conditions are really tight, that they they may be putting their own 
competitive positioning at risk as well. So for that, for those reasons, um, I feel that these contracts are, are, you know, the way they've been designed, particularly with this this notion of baseload supplier, where, you know, even in a period of weaker demand, Albemarle's the last supplier that's really going to feel the pain. Um, I think that these contracts are going to sustain, uh, you know, what could be a difficult um, period for, near-term period for supply and demand in, in this space. Thanks. That's a great answer. Um, I view uh, Albemarle, anyone who wants to play lithium, uh, and I appreciate you're an institutional-focused firm. With this podcast, we talk, we're very much focused um, on providing institutional quality you know, analysis and commentary, but also reaching a much broader swath of what I call Jane and George battery pack, you know, self-directed retail investors. And those who are investing in Tesla or understand that thematic, Albemarle's supplier to Panasonic, which is a supplier to Tesla. I've talked about lithium fuel, uh, you know, like being oil and gas back in, in, in the 20s as a probably a better place to put your money than, um, you know, in, in battery and, and, and auto companies. But, but for a lot of people who just want to play this space and they may migrate to the ETF, you know, LIT, which is about half lithium development companies and producers, but the other half is companies like Tesla and Panasonic and the like. So you're not getting a pure play in that. You're also not getting a pure play in Albemarle. You're, you're more than about half of their business is this bromine and the catalyst. So in investing in Albemarle, you know, there's some risk and there's also potentially some downside protection, like in last quarter where you had a, you know, good bromine results. So, so just you have talked about the bromine and the catalyst business as being oligopolies uh, and they're not starving these businesses by any means of, of cash. So is there a chance for a negative or positive surprise on either of those businesses for an investor who is largely, you know, looking at Albemarle, you know, as a lithium investment? If Almarl does roughly 1.2 billion EBITDA in 2020, um, you know, not quite half of that comes from both the um, the bromine and and catalyst segment combined. Um, these are uh, relatively good quality businesses that um, have their own drivers, their own supply demand fundamentals, their own competitive landscapes. Um, the bromine business is, like you mentioned, um, oligopolistic in nature. Uh, Albemarle is is one of three that um, comprises probably close to 85% of the world's uh, bromine supply. Bromine is, like lithium, is a mineral that's mined, in, in this case, from um, from um, brine resources. The, 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 uh, the predominant sources of, of bromine are, are the Dead Sea in Israel and also um, the smackover formation in Arkansas, um, both very low-cost sources of bromine. Um, what bromine is used for, they, it's sort of like lithium, again, it's um, derivatized into um, chemical formulations and products that are used, uh, in the case of the bromine industry, largely in uh, brominated flame retardants that find its way into all sorts of electronics and plastic applications. Um, also, um, there's bromine-based completion fluids that are used in the the uh, in oil and oil field services. They're used as completion fluids in in deep um, offshore 
uh, drilling applications. Um, so there is some economic sensitivity to the to the uh, to the bromine industry. So if we have a recession, there would you know, and if oil prices come in, there there would be some you know volume impact to that business. However, what's happened over the last couple years is that. The marginal producer had been a cottage uh, industry in, in China, effectively, um, uh, small producers that had disadvantaged resources. A lot of that, for a variety of reasons, a lot of that supply, for a variety of reasons, has been going away. And so that's actually been underpinning a, 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 a favorable um, upward uh, bias in in bromine global bromine prices. The other thing that's helping is you know generally healthy uh, broader electronic electronics end market um, where you have a proliferation of, of um, electronic devices and you know tied to things like the internet of things tied to um, cloud computing uh, any of those printed wiring boards or print circuit boards or even um, you know storage applications will tend to have um, deploy brominated flame retardant. So overall, that the uh, dynamics of that industry is pretty healthy. The margins are good. Um, Albemarle's been very clear. They're not um, investing necessarily to grow that business, but they are in what um, I heard an executive refer to as TLC, TLC mode, where they're going to make sure that these businesses are nurtured and will continue to uh, generate good cash. And that um, is for the purpose, as the company has stated, to help fund the growth in their in their lithium business. But I look at, um, uh, notwithstanding a global recession, I don't see a negative surprise for, from the bromine business on the horizon, especially with the um, the the marginal producer um, shrinking the, the 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 their their supply of, of bromine. The um, the catalyst business is is interesting. It's um, um, they're a, a, a leading supplier of catalysts that are are, are um, sold into the the refining space primarily for. Um, Two two functions. One is the FCC unit or fluid catalytic cracking unit in in a refiner. Um, that's very oligopolistic with um, three suppliers: that Albemarle, WR Grace, and um, BASF, um, dominating as much as call it ninety percent of that market. Um, the, it's a very value-added product that's very critical for the refiners to optimize their yields and their yield slates and um, it's it's been a business that where prices have uh, have been um, generally migrating a little bit higher. It happens slowly over time because some of the supply agreements that these catalyst suppliers have with the refining customers have one, maybe two, maybe three year agreements, and so you you, you may not get incremental pricing um, until those agreements lapse. Or what a lot what a couple of these suppliers will try to do is not so much. Uh, introduce new pricing, but more value-added catalysts that help refiners improve their yields and, and they can capture value that way. Um, but generally speaking, that, that business, um, the, the, the demand is a function of global transportation fuel demand, and that's um, kind of a, a steady grower. Um, if you look over time uh, on metrics like miles driven or or just uh, transportation fuel demand, it, it generally um, is has grown um, you know, low single digits, but steadily over time. And so that, that portion of the business is relatively healthy. There hasn't been a lot of new investment in more FCC catalyst capacity. And with that continued demand strength globally for transportation fuels, um, the overall capacity, 
utilization of the industry is relatively tight. And as a result, they're, 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 these suppliers are getting a little bit of, of pricing. So that, that um, bodes well for, um, to me, over the next couple of years. Going back to Albemarle um, operations, you mentioned this uh, yield enhancement project in Chile uh, costing about $100, was $100 million was your estimate. Uh, Luke mentioned it uh, in, um, in our podcast, you know, from a sustainability point of view, um, you know, that it doesn't use as much water, but also long term, it should, you know, kind of lower the cost. So th- there's been some discussion about this kind of new technology, you know, in Chile, it's, it's a big water is big issue. Just share with us your understanding of, of this. Yeah, sure. They, they've kept this one pretty close to their vest, so I don't have a, a lot to say about it other than that uh, my, my guess is that what they're trying to do is, is implement um, some technology that's akin to what um, Livent does across the Andes over in Argentina, and that would be deploy some form of membrane-based selective absorption, which uh, effectively would have the, the uh, if, increase the amount of, of lithium that they extract from the same amount of brine. So it's, um, if they can make it work, um, and it, it, if, in fact, that's what they're doing, it, it is proven technology. Um, it's not proprietary from a patent standpoint. Maybe from a know-how standpoint, there is a proprietary nature to processing the brines like this. But my understanding is it would it would be sort of a, a high return investment because you effectively you're you can look at it two ways. You're either increasing your 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 yield or you're reducing your costs. Really, you're doing both, and and so that would um, uh, effectively um, shift Albemarle's resource a little bit further to the left on the on the industry cost curve. And that's every everywhere, right? Uh, costs are a function of recovery, and brines historically are something like only fifty percent recovery. And I understood, or Albemarle advertised, that this yield enhancement would increase by 30%. I don't think that means 50 to 80. I think that means 30% on 50% to 65%. Is that, do you know? Uh, yeah, like I said, they, they've kept this one relatively close to the vest, and so um, it's something that um, we'll see how that how it proceeds. Um, but but it would be something that, to the extent that um, it you know, further solidifies their low cost position. I think it would be something that would, would um, you know, be beneficial to their financial profile and attractive to investors. In Lithium Ion Rock, Lithium Ion Bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have convicted to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this, or any other lithium-ion rock or lithium-ion bull. That's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.